Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 166 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that the proposed Facebook penalty by the Irish Data Protection Commission has been called laughable by data privacy campaigners. We then return to the UK, where footballers have launched action for reward for use of their data. We then learn that Microsoft has managed to stop the largest ever distributed denial-of-service DDoS attack. And then once again in the UK, we have a league table of local authority data breaches. We then travel to Oxford in the UK, where a Amazon Ring doorbell has been found to be breaching the Data Protection Act 2018. And in mainland UK, we have news of a data breach affecting McDonald's restaurants. We then travel to India, where Acer India has had a data breach. And then back to London in the UK, where Imperial College has had a data breach. We then have news of a data breach at 3D printing company Thingiverse. And we then travel to Chesterfield in the UK, where Chesterfield Borough Council is facing legal action after a data breach. We then travel to the USA, where the wireless carrier Visible has had a data breach. And we also have an update on the data breach at Accenture. We then have a report of a survey that says that UK firms saw data breaches prevalent during the pandemic. And then, staying on the theme of the pandemic, we travelled to Belgium, where the Belgian Top ID 19 app has suffered a data breach. And then we travelled to Lithuania, where journalists are mounting a campaign because they say that GDPR is being used to suppress the names of people guilty of corruption. We then return to the UK, where the British Computer Society has declared its view on the UK Government Data Handling Consultation which we brought news to you of in episode 163 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And then to Germany, where the German Pirate Party is objecting to plan changes to who is data for domain names. And then finally this week, we travel back to the USA, where the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board has ruled that GDPR does not apply when corporate documents are released in the US courts. So as always, a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show. But unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback we receive, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. If you listened to last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we led on the story about the outage of Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram. Well, Facebook find themselves as our first story again this week, but for a different reason. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that for quite some time now, the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, has been investigating Facebook under GDPR to find if there's any evidence of breaches of GDPR within Facebook's operations and it was known a few months ago that they had found things to be wrong at Facebook and so they issued a draft proposal to fine Facebook $36 million. Now whilst $36 million is a lot to most people, to Facebook it's absolutely nothing. Indeed it's been calculated that it would take Facebook just over two and a half hours to earn that amount in revenue. Not surprisingly, perhaps, this proposed fine has been met with some derision across the GDPR community. But to turn first to what the DPC has found in its summary of findings, the DPC wrote, There is no obligation on Facebook to seek to rely solely on consent for the purposes of legitimising personal data processing, 
where it is offering a contract to a user which some users might assess as one that primarily concerns the process and personal data, nor has Facebook purported to rely on consent under GDPR. I find the complainant's case is not made out that the GDPR does not permit the reliance by Facebook on Article 6, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph B of GDPR in the context of its offering of terms of service. Now this suggestion from the DPC, therefore, is that it's totally bona fide for Facebook to claim a legal right to process people's information for ad targeting because it's suggesting that users actually signed up for a contract that said deliver me some adverts. Yet at the same time, the DPC's draft decision does find that Facebook infringed GDPR transparency requirements, specifically Article 5, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph A, Article 12, Paragraph 1, and Article 13, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph C, meaning that users are unlikely to have understood they were signing up to a Facebook ad contract when they clicked I agree on Facebook's terms and conditions. So the difficulty here is that Facebook's public-facing marketing, which claims its service helps you connect and share with the people in your life, appears to be missing a few critical details about the advertising contract it's actually asking you to enter into. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, Matt Srems, a well-known data privacy advocate, has leapt into the argument and says, It's painfully obvious that Facebook simply tries to bypass the clear rules of GDPR by relabeling the agreement on data use as a contract. He went on to warn that such a basic wheeze allowed to stand, it would undermine the whole GDPR regulation. He said, if this would be accepted, any company could just write the processing of data into a contract and thereby legitimise any use of customer data without consent. This is absolutely against the intentions of GDPR that explicitly prohibits to hide consent agreements in terms and conditions. And that's very true, of course. You know, we're a strong advocate ourselves that GDPR consent has to be informed. You have to know what you're consenting to and you have to know what the organisation or company that you're giving consent to is proposing to do with your data. And the allegation here would be, of course, that Facebook hasn't done that. Swims went on to say it is neither innovative nor smart to claim that an, an agreement is something that it is not to bypass the law. Since Roman times, the courts have not accepted such relabeling of agreements. You can't bypass drug laws by simply writing white powder on a bill when you clearly sell cocaine. Only the Irish Data Protection Commission seems to fall for this trick. Of course, the whole decision could now be referred to the European Data Protection Board and indeed that's what activists are pressing for and there does seem to be some logic in that. Swims went on to say, we have many cases before many authorities but the DPC is not even remotely running a fair procedure. Documents are withheld, hearings are denied and submitted arguments and facts are simply not reflected in the decision. The Facebook decision itself is lengthy but most sections just end with a view of the Data Protection Commissioner, not an objective assessment of the law. We have reached out to the Irish DPC for a comment, but a spokesperson declined, saying that because this was an ongoing investigation, they weren't able to comment at the current time. We also approached Facebook for a statement, and Facebook said, We don't speculate or comment on live investigations. We are assisting the Irish State Protection Commissioner with its inquiries, and we'll wait the final decision in due course. Doubtless this is a story we will return to in the future here on the GDPR Weekly Show, but let us have your comments. Email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with what you think about this Facebook decision and we'll bring the best comments to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. To the UK now and hundreds of footballers and for those of our listeners who are in the USA, that means soccer players, have threatened legal action against the data collection industry which could change how information is handled. The action is being led by former Cardiff City, Leighton Orient and Yeovil Town Manager Russell Slade. 
where he's representing 850 players who want compensation for the trading of their performance data over the past six years. They also want an annual fee from the companies for any future use. Letters before action have been sent to 17 big firms alleging data misuse. The data involved ranges from averages goals per game to the height of a player. However, Mr Slade has previously expressed concern that sometimes the data is wrong. If the group pursues legal action and is successful, it could lead to a radical change of a multi-billion pound industry behind professional sport that trades information about players. The legal team involved said the fact players receive no payment for the unlicensed use of their data contravenes GDPR. Under Article 4 of GDPR, personal data refers to a range of identifiable information such as physical attributes, location data or physiological information. While 17 major betting, entertainment and data selection firms have been targeted in this initial action, it's believed that there could be more than 150 companies who will be involved It should this case succeed. Now, of course, Premier League players are famous for how much they earn, and so while receiving a fee for the use of their data would probably be useful to them, it's unlikely to make any real impact on their earnings. However, of course, the further you go down the football pyramid, the more the amount of money becomes important. And Slade feels strongly that those lower down the pyramid in both the men's and women's games would see tangible benefit. Slade said, It's incredible where it's used. On one player, and I'm not talking about a Premier League player or even a Championship player, there were some 7,000 pieces of information on that individual player at a lower league football club. There are companies that are taking that data and processing that data without the individual consent of that player. A big part of our journey has been looking at that ecosystem and plotting out where the data starts, who's processing it, where it finishes, and that's a real global thing. It's making football, and indeed all sports, aware of the implications and what needs to change. Now, of course, the use of data in sport is nothing new. Its collection, distribution and use has become a stable part of the modern sporting environment, be it by clubs themselves to manage player performance or by third-party companies to base things like betting odds on. If this move is successful, the implications to have far-reaching effects beyond football, as you think of other sports like horse racing or Formula One or even rugby league. Any, any, any such sports have the same sort of data which could eventually fall under this ruling. Former Wales international Dave Edwards, one of the players behind the move, said it was a chance for players to take more control of the way information about them is used. Having seen how data has become a staple part of the modern game, he believes players' rights to how information about them is used should be at the forefront of any future use. The more I've looked into it and you see how our data is used, the amount of channels it's passed through, all the different organisations that use it, I feel as a player we should have a say on who's allowed to use it, he said. Anyone else in the world would have that say, just because we're footballers and we're public domain, that gets overlooked. If you were in another job, if you were a teacher or a lawyer, and this sort of details were being passed around your field of work, it wouldn't sit right with you. I don't think we, as individuals, really differ from that. The lawyer behind the action, Chris Farnell, believes it would be a start of a sport-wide reshaping of how data is traded. This would be a significant change if the president is set throughout football and how data is used throughout sport in general, he said. It will change significantly how that data is being used and how it's going to be rewarded. We will, of course, keep a close eye on this court action as it proceeds, and whenever there's a judgment or other news to bring you, we will, of course, bring that to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Microsoft claims to have mitigated a record 2.4 terabits per second distributed denial of service attack targeting one of its Azure customers in Europe during the last week of August. 
The company said the attack was 140% larger than the highest attack bandwidth volume Microsoft recorded in 2020 and higher than any network volumetric event previously detected on Azure. It also surpasses the previous largest distributed denial of service attack, which peaked at 2.3 terabits per second and was directed at Amazon Web Services last year. Microsoft said the attack originated from around 70,000 sources and from multiple countries in the Asia-Pacific region, including Malaya, Vietnam, Japan and China, as well as the US. The attack spanned over 10 minutes with very short-lived bursts, each ramping up in seconds to terabit volumes of data. The company monitored three main peaks, the first at 2.4 terabits per second, the second at 0.55 terabits per second, and the third at 1.7 terabits per second. Microsoft's attack mitigation lifecycle has orchestrated its control plan logic that dynamically allocates mitigation resources to meet the most optimal locations closest to the attack sources. This meant that the attack traffic, which originated in the Asia Pacific region and the US, did not reach the customer region but was instead mitigated at source. Azure's distributed denial of service mitigation employs fast detection and mitigation of large attacks by continuously monitoring our infrastructure at many points across the network, said Ahmed Dahan. Senior Program Manager at Azure Networking. He went on to say, When deviations from baselines are extremely large, our distributed denial of service control plane logic cuts through normal detection steps needed for lower volume floods to immediately kick in mitigation. This ensures the fastest time to mitigation and prevents collateral damage from such large attacks. Dahan added that the customer did not suffer any impact or downtime, but if they'd been running their own data centre instead of using Azure, they would most probably have incurred extensive financial damage as well as other intangible costs. A report from VPN Overview this week showed the number of data breaches reported by various local authorities across the UK, and it enabled it to form a lead table of the 15 worst offenders in terms of breaches of GDPR. So in 15th place, we had Cheshire East Council, with 797 breaches. 14th place went to East Riding of Yorkshire Council with 844 breaches. 13th place went to Cambridgeshire County Council with 908 breaches. 12th place went to Surrey County Council with 952 breaches. 11th place went to West Sussex County Council with 966 breaches. And then coming into the top 10, in 10th place was Wiltshire Council with 1,028 breaches. 9th place was North Yorkshire County Council with 1,106 breaches. 8th place, Suffolk County Council with 1,161 breaches. 7th place, Oxfordshire County Council with 1,181 breaches. 6th place, Norfolk County Council with 1,226 breaches. 5th place, East Sussex County Council with 1,250 breaches. 4th place, Warwickshire County Council with 1,252 breaches. And then the top three, third place to Lancashire County Council with 1,260 breaches, second place to Gloucestershire County Council with 2,723 breaches, and a clear leader, and nothing to be proud of, for Hampshire County Council with 3,759 breaches. I think it's fair to say that all of those councils, but particularly the top three, have real room for improvement, and you'd hope that they are putting suitable training in place to reduce their number of breaches that they're going to report in the future. And if we're talking number of breaches and councils, it would only be fair to mention the lowest number. All the lowest number of councils for reporting data breaches are based in Northern Ireland, which is interesting, because that would imply that something is different in the training of staff in Northern Ireland to the staff in the rest of the United Kingdom. Anyway, the four councils are in joint third place, 
Mid-Ulster District Council, Dungannon, and Derry City and Strabane District Council, both with 10 breaches. In second place, Mid and East Antrim Borough Council, with 6 breaches. And in top place, and they can be very proud of themselves, I think, with only just 4 breaches, was Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council. If you are from a council which has a large number of breaches and you'd like to improve your GDPR training, we would, of course, be absolutely delighted to help you. So please do reach out to us on the contact details that are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Oxford in the UK now and a judge at Oxford County Court has ruled that the Amazon Ring doorbell's ability to record sound more than 40 feet away is in violation of the UK Data Protection Act 2018. Many of you will know, of course, that Amazon Ring is a video doorbell, which allows users to see, talk and to and record people who come to their doorsteps. Ring was acquired by Amazon for $1 billion in 2018. Now, of course, there have been concerns that Ring's products encroached on privacy before, particularly where the doorbell can see out onto the street. In this particular case involving Mary Fairhurst, she took her neighbour John Woodard to court after alleging that his many CCTV cameras, including an Amazon Ring doorbell camera, counted as harassment and a breach of the Data Protection Act 2018. Woodard had installed the camera on the neighbour's wall after claiming a criminal gang had tried to steal his car. The camera was pointed towards a communal car park and its access road. The ruling was in favour of Fairhurst because the camera could record audio from and pick up conversations more than 40 feet away. The extent of range to which these devices can capture audio is well beyond the range of video that they capture and in my view cannot be said to be reasonable for the purpose for which the device is used by the defendant since the legitimate aim for which they are said to be used, namely crime prevention, could surely be achieved by something less, said Her Honour Judge Melissa Clark. For their part, Ring say that this ruling does not affect customers' ability to install and use their devices if they comply with applicable laws when setting up and using the device. A Ring spokesperson said... We strongly encourage our customers to respect their neighbours' privacy and comply with any applicable laws when using their Ring product. It said there are features in all its devices to ensure that privacy, security and user control remain front and centre. This includes customisable privacy zones to block out off-limit areas, motion zones to control the areas customers want their Ring device to detect motion, and audio toggles to turn the audio on and off. It says its devices are not intended for capturing someone else's property or public areas, and its products come with a sticker which is meant to be put up somewhere close to the device, its purpose is to alert those nearby to the camera. So while if you've got an Amazon Ring doorbell, we wouldn't say right at the moment you have to get rid of it, but if the case does end up in a high court or court of appeal, then a more serious legal precedent could be set. It's understood that Amazon have updated their product to provide better controls, but it's important that users use them. So if you do have a Ring camera or Ring doorbell, do make sure that you're not inadvertently listening in to conversations from your neighbours. If we do hear any more on this case, or if there is an appeal, we will, of course, bring you updates here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Remaining in the UK, McDonald's made a bit of a gaffe when it informed customers who won a prize draw competition with more than they hoped after the burger chain emailed them login credentials for development and production databases used to power their campaign. The first person to report the blunder to McDonald's startup founder Connor Gregg said, It's a bit weird, adding that code streams contain the credentials as if they'd been formatted into the email by accident. Like scores of British people around the country, Gregg, founder of web platform toolkit Creatorsphere, enjoys munching McDonald's produce. 
One of the chain's most recent promotions was a Monopoly-themed giveaway. Diners collected tokens with their burgers and typed promotional codes printed on them into McDonald's website. McDonald's would then email them saying whether they'd won something or not. Lucky winners could pick up a range of goods and services, including a six-month free subscription to Next Up Comedy, an up-to-up video streaming site. Dredd was rather surprised, therefore, to find a string of familiar-looking code, including a McDonald's email, telling him about his free subscription. The one-time Hewlett-Packard engineer said he recognised the code above the email body text as a Windows as a database connection string. This category is telling me what the database name is, he explained, and this persists security info true is where the issue is. This should be false. Where you mark that as true, it actually outputs the credentials. And right there, this user ID and password is the same user ID and password for production. Alarmed by the implications, Greg tried to get in contact with McDonald's. He ran into immediate problems. The UK part of McDonald's doesn't have a security.txt file on its website. Similar to robot.txt's instructions with search engine crawlers, security.txt contains contact details so people finding security vulnerabilities can directly contact the company's information security department. So next, he tried phoning McDonald's corporate headquarters, only, he said, to get through the recorded message telling him everyone was working from home. Next, he emailed just under a dozen McDonald's UK email addresses he was able to find. Nobody responded. In frustration, he posted a video on TikTok begging McDonald's to respond. Someone did eventually reply to his emails by accidentally copying Greg into an email that described his attempts to report the breach under the email subject line, Responsible Security Disclosure, as suspicious. After some to and froing, Greg was able to speak to an information security person at McDonald's who understood what was going on and was able to get the problem fixed. In a statement, McDonald's insisted that the credentials that emailed to an unknown number of customers were only for a staging database. It also asserted that no customer data was exposed, which seems a bold assertion to make when the database was clearly linked with an emailed marketing campaign. Those affected will be contacted to reassure them that this was a human error and that their information remains safe. We take data privacy very seriously and apologise for any undue concern this error has caused, the McDonald's spokesman said. It does appear that someone at McDonald's may have committed an accidental copy and paste error when setting up auto replies for the marketing campaign. If we hear any more on this from McDonald's, we will of course to you in a future episode of the GDPR Week Show. To India now, and a hacker group has claimed to have breached the servers of Acer India with approximately 60 gigabytes of sensitive data belonging to several million of the company's customers being leaked online. Known as Disorderan, the group said it had stolen customer information, corporate data, financial data and information related to recent company audits. The hackers said that the breach included data on several million Acer customers, mostly from India. It appears to have taken place on the 5th of October, as this is the most recent date listed in the leaked databases. Disorderan also said that it would give Acer access to the database to verify the data and prove the breach is real. A sample of data released for free, which included information on over 10,000 individuals, was found to be accurate and genuine by researchers who were able to make contact with some of those affected. The group has said that data belonging to several million more ACE adjustments will be released for a fee at a later date. We have recently detected an isolated attack on our local after-sales service system in India, an ACE spokesperson said. Upon detection, we immediately initiated our security protocols and conducted a full scan of our systems. We are notifying all potentially affected customers in India. The spokesperson went on to say that the incident has been reported to the local law enforcement and the Indian Computer Emergency Response Team and there's been no material impact to the company's operations and business continuity. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 
Back to the UK now, and the Imperial College London accidentally released the personal data of thousands of students. In the data breach, Imperial College London accidentally released the personal data of thousands of students, including their full names, UCAS numbers, dates of birth, home addresses, ethnicity, telephone numbers and the room number when they stayed in halls of residence at the university. The data was made accessible by the College's Freedom of Information team in the form of a net sales spreadsheet, where it appears that rows containing sensitive data were hidden but not deleted. The data was made available on the website whatdotheyknow.com, where it was publicly available for anyone to download for nine days before being flagged by the person who'd made the request and subsequently removed from the site. The data was available from the 14th to the 23rd of June 2021. The original request, titled Data by College Halls, asked Imperial College for all undergraduate halls for the last five years could you please provide for each individual hall the number of students by each subject, e.g. 100 computing 25 physics, and the number of students by fee status, i.e. home, EU or international. A further request for the percentage of students by age and gender was made later the same day. The person who made the original request described the mistakenly uploaded data as containing thousands of rows of student records, including full names, UCAS numbers, dates of birth, room numbers, home addresses, ethnicity and telephone numbers. When we approached Imperial College, they declined to specify exactly what data was included in the breach or how many student details had been included. However, if the data did answer the requester's original query, then we have to assume that the data would have been for every student who stayed in halls of residence at Imperial College for the last five years. Ironically, the College's Freedom of Information Manager, when contacted, said he couldn't see any personal data included in the spreadsheet. Only when the requester explained how they drew the personal data did the Freedom of Information team accept that a breach had occurred and asked the user to delete the document from their device. In a written statement, an Imperial College spokesperson said, As soon as we were made aware of this breach, we immediately self-reported to the ICO, who have since confirmed that they are content with Imperial's response and will take no further action. When we asked the College spokesperson whether any attempt had been made to notify the students whose data had been included in the breach, they responded by saying the data was only accessed by the requester and the college and what they know staff who were working to resolve the issue. The ICO's regulatory guidance arises against notifying individuals in such circumstances, they said. Confirmation that no one had downloaded the data other than the original requester was gained through collaboration between Imperial College and whatdotheyknow.com. The spokesperson added that the college have implemented a series of additional measures to prevent this happening again. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Thingiverse, a site that hosts free-to-use 3D printer designs, has suffered a data breach, and at least 228,000 users' email addresses have been circulating on black hat crime forums on the dark web. News of the breach came from Have I Been Pawned, whose maintainer, Troy Hunt, uploaded the 228,000 breached email addresses to the site after being tipped off of their circulation on the forums. Hunt claimed on Twitter that in excess of 2 million addresses were in the breach. He qualified that by saying the majority were email addresses that appeared to be generated by Thingiverse itself, judging from their format, webdev plus username as a variable, at makerbot.com. Some of the data included poorly encrypted passwords. For example, some were just hashed with an unsorted SHA1 hash. Thingiverse disputes the figures and claims a mere handful of users were impacted. Thingiverse is owned by 3D printing firm MakerBot. MakerBot has not yet publicly acknowledged that the breach has occurred. Thingiverse has now issued a statement. We became aware of and have addressed an internal human error 
that led to the exposure of some non-sensitive user data for a handful of Thingiverse users. We have not identified any suspicious attempts to access Thingiverse accounts, and we encourage the relevant Thingiverse members to update their passwords as a precautionary measure. We apologise for this incident and regret any inconvenience it's caused. We are committed to protecting our valued stakeholders and assets through transparency and rigorous security management. We return to the UK now and to Chesterfield, where a man is launching legal action against Chesterfield Borough Council after a data breach. Daniel Green received an apology from Chesterfield Borough Council earlier this year after a council employee was caught on video verbally abusing him. Mr Green took the footage in July at the council's stone gravel depot after claiming to have been threatened earlier in the day by another council employee. After asking repeatedly to speak to a manager, Mr Green is sworn at twice by a member of staff behind a counter in the office. The council has apologised and says it does not condone this type of behaviour towards any member of the public. But when Mr Green posted a video on the council depot incident on YouTube, he says staff breached his data in comments on the site. He said, I think it's pathetic. We pay the council all this money in council tax and this is the sort of service we get. A data breach is very serious. They've written to me, admitted the breach has taken place and apologised, but the way they've treated me throughout all this has been a joke. I've contacted the solicitor and they'll be taking legal action against the council. A spokesperson for Chesterfield Borough Council said the council has offered a full apology to Mr Green for the behaviour of our members of staff and the subsequent issues he's raised with regard to data protection. The council does not condone this type of behaviour towards any member of the public. We can also confirm that a full investigation into behaviour and reaction of the council staff has now taken place and appropriate action has been taken. We have written to Mr Green with regard to the data protection issue, advising him of his right to complain to the Information Commissioner should he wish to do so. We will fully and appropriately engage with any contact from the Information Commissioner, but we cannot comment any further at this stage. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com to America now, and wireless carrier company Visible has confirmed reports of a data breach that gave hackers unauthorised access to the customers' accounts and payment information, but some Visible customers say they're still waiting to get fraudulent charges reversed. Customers first reported the breach over the last weekend after noticing emails from Visible saying that their email addresses, passwords and addresses have been changed, but they themselves hadn't initiated the action. Some customers even had unauthorised charges from Visible placed on their PayPal, debit or credit card accounts for costly purchases like an iPhone 12 or the latest iPhone 13 Pro Max that cost over $1,000. Several Visible customers said that they had been unable to reset their passwords because Visible's password reset feature appeared to be down and any reset emails were going to the changed emails of the bad actors and not their personal emails. Visible, owned by Verizon, is an all-digital wireless carrier in the US. Visible is popular amongst users because of its price. For as low as $25 a month, Visible users get unlimited talk, text, data and mobile hotspots. Verizon is one of the largest wireless carriers in the US and services over 121.3 million wireless customers. Some customers have been upset about lack of communication from the company, saying they found out about the breach through conversations on the internet. Customers have also complained that the carrier has been slow to act once fraud is detected on their accounts and that they are still unable to access their accounts several days after the initial breach. Visible first released a statement on Twitter on Wednesday stating that the bad actors were able to access customers' usernames and passwords from an outside source. As soon as we were made aware of the issue, we immediately initiated a review and started deploying tools to mitigate the issue and enable additional controls to further protect our customers, a spokesperson for Visible said. 
If you use your visible username and password across multiple accounts, including your bank or other financial accounts, we recommend updating your username and password with these other services. It's notable, perhaps, that Visible does not offer multi-factor authentication for its account. If we receive any further update on Visible or Verizon, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Accenture has confirmed that threat actors connected to the Lockbit ransomware group stole and leaked proprietary corporate data and breached customer systems. The disclosure was made on Friday in Accenture's required annual 10K report with the US Securities and Exchange Commission. The financial analysis includes a list of risk factors such as competing businesses or global economic conditions that could end up adversely impacting the company's stock price. Buried amongst that list of risks was discussion about how a data breach could impact Accenture's own business as well as that of its customers. During the fourth quarter of fiscal year 2021, we identified a regular activity in one of our environments which included the extraction of proprietary information by a third party, some of which was made available to the public by the third party. In addition, our clients have experienced and may in the future experience breaches of systems and cloud-based services enabled or by or provided by us, Accenture noted. To date, these incidents have not had a material impact on ours or all our clients' operations. However, there is no reassurance that such impacts will not be material in the future, and such incidents have in the past. It's now known that the irregular activity described in the report was in fact the August breach of Accenture's internal network by hackers who were able to obtain some data. The hackers who were operating the Lockbit ransomware as a service system, after failing to extract the requested ransom payment from Accenture, the hackers eventually dumped the data online. While Accenture has admitted that the attackers were able to get into its networks and access some corporate data, Accenture said no customer systems have been impacted. We immediately contained the matter and isolated the affected servers. We fully restored our affected systems from backups, as Accenture's spokesman said. There was no impact on Accenture's operations or on our client systems. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Returning to the UK now, and according to a study from security company SecureAge Technology, which surveyed 200 employers and 400 employees from around the UK, the company found that 48% of businesses had experienced a data breach during the pandemic, and further 16% of employees suffered a personal cybersecurity incident during the same period. According to the report, part of the problem lies in inefficient employee training. Less than 50% of employers provide formal training on how to detect and handle phishing emails, how to set up a strong password, or how to protect sensitive information when working remotely. Two-thirds of the employers said that they would be investing further in cybersecurity, with a third of this group saying they planned to increase their budgets by up to 50%. At the same time, 86% of employers have already started adopting new security measures. If you as a company have been affected during the pandemic by a data breach and you wish to update your training, then of course we'd be delighted to speak with you. Please do contact us using the details which are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Belgium now and Belgium's COVID-19 app that verifies coronavirus vaccinations has reported a data leak just days before Brussels is set to require people to prove they've been jabbed in order to enter restaurants. A potential leak from the COVID-Scan app may have exposed sensitive health data of 39,000 people, the country's data protection authority said in a press release. The app is used to read the QR codes usually on a phone that prove people have received a vaccine or have recently tested negative for the virus. 
From this Friday, the nation's capital will mandate that people need to show a COVID pass to enter bars, restaurants, sports clubs and hospitals. The measure aims to stoke the local economy and spur vaccination. Brussels' vaccination rates lag behind the rest of the country, forcing it to keep tighter measures in place. To Lithuania now, and a court in Lithuania has ruled that a newspaper breached GDPR rules by including names of people allegedly involved in corruption, setting a dangerous precedent for investigative journalism. In a statement, a statement issued by Lithuanian journalists said, We, Lithuanian journalists and media representatives, do not approve that under the guise of national or international law, some public authorities, including administrative courts, could substantially limit the definition of a public person and thus deprive society of its right to information. We stand in solidarity with the editorial board of Atvira Tlapedia, whose aspiration to defend the right to information must be taken to the constitutional court or even international legal authorities. Our community fully supports these initiatives. On October the 6th, the Supreme Administrative Court of Lithuania rejected the Tlapedia News website's complaint regarding the decision by the Office of the Inspector for Journalistic Ethics. The office ruled that at Vera Tlapida, which reported about public procurements of the public company Detivu Apfimatis Street Lighting, managed by Tlapida City Municipality, as well as involved persons, violated GDPR. Public authorities are increasingly using GDPR as a pretext to limit access to information. In our opinion, this and subsequent decisions by administrative courts fundamentally alter the practice of democracy, the public right to information and journalists' right to accurately inform the Lithuanian society. We are convinced that the extremely diligent and excessive protection of the privacy of public individuals must not deprive the public of its right to information about the non-transparent activities of public authorities and their associates, possible corruption and nepotism. The Constitutional Court of the Republic of Lithuania has repeatedly emphasised the fundamental role of constitutional freedom of information, including the right of the media to seek, receive and disseminate information and ideas about hindrance, ensuring and developing the idea of an open, just and harmonious civil society. It is a necessary precondition for building and maintaining democracy. We are convinced that the administrative court's novel practices contradict those values outlined by the Constitutional Court and prevent the media from contributing to the maintenance and preservation of the democratic order. The decisions by the Inspector of Journalistic Ethics and some courts form a dangerous precedent, denying the previously established principles of the public's right to information and freedom of speech. And that statement is then signed by a number of individuals, including the chairwoman of the National Press Association, the chairman of the Internet Media Association, the chairman of the Lithuanian Union of Journalists, the chairwoman of the board of the National Association of District and City Newspapers, and then various editors of Lithuanian newspapers. We have approached the Lithuanian government, but they have refused to comment. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Back in episode 163 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we mentioned about the consultation which has been opened by the government and the Information Commissioner's Office into the future of data controls in the UK. The consultation, which is called Data in New Direction, is open until the 19th of November this year for people to make comments. This week, the British Computer Society, the Chartered Institute for IT, weighed into the debate by saying that the right to human review of decisions made fully by computers should not be removed while artificial intelligence is still in its infancy. 
The government consultation on personal data suggests that human appeal against some automated decisions by artificial intelligence, which might include recruitment or loan eligibility, could be unnecessary. Dr. Sam De Silva, chair of BCS's Law Specialist Group and a partner at law firm CMS, explained Article 22 of GDPR is not an easy provision to interpret and there is danger in interpreting it in isolation like many have done. We still do need clarity on the rights someone has in this area where there's fully automated decision-making which could have significant impact on the individual. We would also welcome clarity on whether Article 22, Paragraph 1 should be interpreted as a blanket prohibition of all automated data processing that fits the criteria or a more limited right to change the decision resulting from such processing. As a professional body for IT, the British Computer Society is not convinced that either retaining Article 22 in its current form or removing it achieves such clarity. We also need to consider that protection of human review of fully automated decisions is currently in a piece of legislation dealing with personal data. If no personal data is involved, the protection does not apply, but this decision could still have a life-changing impact on us. For example, say an algorithm is created deciding whether you should get a vaccine, the data you need to enter into the system is likely to be date of birth, ethnicity and other things, but not name or anything which to identify you as a person. Based on the input, the decision could be that you're not eligible for a vaccine, but any protections in GDPR would not apply as there's no personal data. So if we think the protection is important enough, it should not go into GDPR. It begs the question, do we need to regulate artificial intelligence generally and not through the back door of GDPR? It is welcome that government is consulting carefully before making any changes to people's right to appeal decisions about them by algorithms and automated systems, but the technology is still in its infancy. BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, supports the consultation and will be gathering views from across its membership. The consultation says that automated decision-making is likely to be increased greatly in many industries in the coming years. The need to maintain a capability to provide human review may in future not be practical or proportionate, and it is important to assess when this safeguard is needed and how it works in practice. It acknowledges that there may be a legitimate need for certain high-risk artificial intelligence-derived decisions to require human review, even if this restricts the scope of use of such systems or makes them slower. The Department of Culture, Media and Sports said it's seeking further evidence as a part of a consultation before forming any firm proposal on Article 22 and the right to request a review of all fully automated decisions. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com to Germany now, and the German Pirate Party claims that EU plans for a GDPR-compliant Who Is version 2 will lead to death lists. ICANN has also expressed its dislike for the proposal, but other web infrastructure firms have said they don't really mind. The European Union has drawn this attack because it's proposing that real names and contact details should go back into Who Is lookups as part of its Network and Information Systems Directive. The EU's Commission's draft update to the directive has been slowly grinding through the bloc's bureaucracy and this week German Pirate Party MEP Patrick Breyer declared it a big step towards abolishing anonymous publications and leaks on the internet. Why would this be so? Well because the draft directive's explanatory memorandum says that the main registries will have to establish policies and procedures for the selection and maintenance of accurate, verified and complete registration data as well as the prevention and correction of inaccurate registration data. 
However, this isn't the same thing as saying that there will be free publication of names and contact details. Currently, the draft text of Article 23 states, Member States are ensured that the TLD registries and the entities providing domain name registration services for the TLD publish without undue delay after the registration of a domain name, domain registration data which is not personal data. Until 2018, the norm was that people's data would be shown when you did a Who is lookup, but GDPR came into force and gathering and publishing personal data online without registrants' explicit consent to publication was in breach of GDPR, and therefore the regulations towards the death of the protocol underpinning who is. Now, however, the EU have been spent considerable time and effort defending its position, wants to mandate a GDPR-compliant form of who is, something the private parties Breyer described as a licence to create death lists, as well as carrying out data theft and loss, stalking and identity theft. Bizarrely, given the history, ICANN appears to disagree with the EU's move to restore the partial status quo. In a feedback note published on the EU Commission website during March 2021, ICANN's at-large advisory committee said the draft director's plans for TLD registries were unworkable. Some or all of the registration data may never be stored by or even presented to the registrar. It will be held by a privacy or proxy provider. A proxy provider will not pass on either the name of the real registrant or their contact information, a privacy provider protects only the contact data, ICANN said. We're sure that this debate is going to rage on for a few months yet, so whenever there's an update, we'll bring it to you here on the GDPR Weekly Show. And we finish this week with news of a rare precedent set by the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board in the USA, which could have implications across Europe. In the rare precedent opinion, the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, the TTAB, ruled that GDPR does not apply in board proceedings. This arose from a case between Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Inc. and International Exchange Holdings, Inc. This was a consolidated proceeding between those two organisations and brought before the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. Chicago Mercantile Exchange sought to amend the board's standard protective order to allow in-house access to information and materials designated by Intercontinental Exchange Holdings, Inc. as confidential, attorney's eyes only, and asked the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board to find that GDPR does not apply in these proceedings. The board's SPO is automatically imposed in all inter-party proceedings. In order for the board to disturb their SPO, CME needed to show that protection of ICE's trade secrets will impair CME's prosecution of its claim. ICE asserted that CME failed to show good clause for modification of the SPO, and the board agreed. As an initial matter, CME failed to provide information sufficient for the board to determine in-house counsel's responsibilities, including whether those responsibilities included competitive decision-making, such as that disclosure to in-house counsel would competitively harm ICE. Secondly, CME failed to clearly demonstrate that there was a need for access to the highly sensitive competitive information to adequately prepare its case. Accordingly, the board denied CME's motion to amend the protective order. CME next raised the issue of whether ICE may redact names, email addresses and other information from documents and electronically stored information originating in the European Union prior to its production on the basis that GDPR requires such redaction. CME argued that because ICE waited more than 18 months to assert the objection, the objection should be waived, that CME will be severely prejudiced if ICE's objection stands and that GDPR does not apply to inter-party board proceedings. 
Now, of course, you should remember that the broad definition given to personal data in GDPR encompasses any information relating to an identified or identifiable person. In its decision, the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, citing the 1987 Supreme Court case Societe Nationale Industrielle Aerospatiale versus the US District Court, established that foreign countries' laws precluding disclosure of evidence in US courts and tribunals will generally not deprive those courts and tribunals of the power to order a party subject to that jurisdiction to produce evidence, even though the act of production may violate the foreign statute. Additionally, GDPR does not per se bar disclosure of protected data in litigation and even provides data transfers where the transfer is necessary for the establishment exercise or defence of legal claims. Assessing the withheld information in accordance with factors established in Society Nationale, the Board determined that ICE is sufficiently protected under the SPO and rejected the argument that GDPR requires ICE to redact relevant business records. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurative production. Until next time, bye bye!